The last four Sundays we at Bethel have been working through a series of passages in the book of Isaiah known as Servant Songs. These songs were written around 700 BC and they foretell Jesus and they speak of what he would accomplish in his life, his death and his resurrection. What we've seen is that Jesus himself clearly identified himself as the person in those songs written centuries before him. One of the phrases that the first Christians used to describe Jesus was God's servant. Now our passage this morning isn't one of the servant songs but it comes immediately after the fourth and the longest and the most well known of those songs in Isaiah chapter 53. And that song described in detail how this servant of God would suffer on behalf of his people by coming under the judgement of God that they deserved. Like the other songs, it's followed by a call to respond. At two of the songs, the first two, the response was break forth into singing uh, and that is the response that's called for here today. Verse 1, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. And the reason for singing is in verse 5 where God is described as the Redeemer. And I want to pick up on this theme of Redeemer, of redemption and talk about three ways in which this idea of redemption is used in the Bible and show how each of them help us understand what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. Each of these ideas was enshrined in Israel's law in the Old Testament. The first one is the law about the redemption of the firstborn. Let me read for you the passage that explains that. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or If you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. In the the final of the ten disasters that God used to convince Egypt's king, Pharaoh, to let the Jews go free from slavery, in that final disaster, the firstborn in every family in Egypt 
died in a single night except for those in the Jews' house. They were instructed to sacrifice a lamb, to paint its blood on the doorframe of their house and to eat the lamb in a meal that came to be known as Passover. So the annual Passover feast is a reminder of that night but there would be an ongoing reminder of that night in this practice of the redemption of the firstborn. When a woman became pregnant with her first child, a lamb would be set aside from the flock and kept ready to be sacrificed when that son was born. It was a way of reminding them that the reason they were a free people was because of God's generous mercy to them. They weren't rescued from Egypt because they were any better than anyone else. They were no better than the Egyptians. They were no more deserving of God's favour than anyone else. It wasn't because of anything they'd done, but because of God's generosity and because he had made promises long ago to their ancestor Abraham and he was committed to keeping those promises. Now in their culture, the firstborn was the heir. He would be the next head of the household. He had responsibility to provide and to care for the whole family. So in a sense, he represented everyone in the family. So when he was redeemed, the whole family was redeemed. No human being is born with a right in and of ourselves to life or breath or anything. I know that's something that we don't like to hear today in an age of rights. But God isn't obligated to give us anything. He's our creator. Rather, we are born with an obligation to honour him as our God, to give thanks to him for everything. He has the supreme right to give and to take life. That's his prerogative as God. But not only that, each one of us, every human being, is born estranged from God and sinful in our hearts by nature and that's something that's demonstrated as soon as we're able to speak and act selfishly and sinfully. So the reality actually is that no one deserves to live at all. We did nothing to deserve being born and on top of that we've fallen short of God's standard and we deserve his judgement. And that's what every Jewish family had communicated to them when they sacrificed the lamb at the birth of their firstborn. We live only because of God's mercy. Now here's the astounding thing that we see in Jesus. We might even say shocking. When we deserve death, Jesus, whom the Bible describes as God's firstborn or only begotten son, willingly entered this world and laid down his life to redeem us. He stepped into the place of that lamb. He died in the place of those who otherwise 
deserve to die, you and me, so that we might not only live, but that we might belong in God's family as firstborn sons and daughters. Secondly, the Bible talks about the redemption of slaves. The practice of setting a slave free. Now, slavery was commonplace in the ancient world. And a lot of the slavery wasn't the kind that we think of today. It was more like indentured labour. A way for a person to pay off a debt by binding themselves to work for someone until the debt was paid. Now, a slave could be redeemed if their debt was cancelled. Either they found the money to pay it themselves or if someone paid the debt on their behalf. So once the debt was paid, the person was free. Jesus told a story, a parable, about a very generous and wealthy man whose slave had a debt that was impossible for him or his family members to pay off. In today's terms, it was around $14 billion. The rich man chose to cancel the debt at great loss to himself. Now, the story goes on to to describe how the slave didn't appreciate this generosity. He refused to show the same generosity to someone who owed him a much smaller debt. Jesus told this story to illustrate what God has done for us. Jesus described sin both as a debt that we owe to God and as something that enslaves us. He said, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the one who can save people here, not from a financial debt, but from the debt we owe to God for sin. How does he do that? How does he set us free from slavery to sin? Well, it says in Colossians 2, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Jesus, God has taken onto himself the debt that we owe. He was, figuratively speaking, writing fully paid on the statement of our debt and in Jesus he nailed it to the cross and he did away with it forever. The third image of redemption is the one that's used in our passage this morning. It's the practice known as the kinsman redeemer. It specified the responsibility of someone to come to the aid of a relative who was in need or in danger. The principle extended to helping someone who wasn't a flesh and blood relative but was related by marriage. So Deuteronomy says if if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man 
shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. One entire Bible book, the book of Ruth, is devoted to telling the story of how this was put into practice. And it shows how because of a man's willingness to be the kinsman redeemer, a young widow, the family tree in the family tree of King David and eventually the family tree of Jesus. He married her and the family tree was preserved. So see how our passage this morning describes people like a woman who has no children. And we learn in verse 4 that the reason she has no children is because she was widowed when she was young, before she could have children. But worse than that, her predicament is because her, not because her husband died, but because she's been deserted by her husband. This was the worst case scenario for a woman in the world at that time. Being cast off by her husband would make it unlikely that anyone would be willing to marry her because they would consider her to be disgraced. There were few people more at risk in the world of the time than a widowed or unmarried woman with no family. But look at verse 5. The Lord himself puts up his hand and says, I will become her husband. I will be her kinsman redeemer. And that's what changes everything. Instead of losing hope of ever having children, she's actually told to make her tent bigger to accommodate a growing family. And while she does this, she's singing for joy. In fact, even the enlarged tent won't be big enough. She'll have enough offspring to populate cities. And because of that, she'll have no more shame. Now the word for shame in the Hebrew language, the original language, implies vulnerability, a fear, a fear of being harmed. Whether we admit it or not, one of the biggest forces that motivates and influence us as human beings is fear. It might be a simple fear about our physical well-being, a fear that we've all observed or maybe even experienced in recent times during COVID-19. It may be a fear about our reputation because if we're honest, what other people think of us is all important to us. We'll often go to great lengths to make ourselves look good because we fear having a bad opinion from others. But underlying whatever fears we have is the ultimate fear 
the fear of death. Every human fear can be traced back eventually to that fear. The Bible says it's a fear that holds us captive all of our lives, a fear that's only broken when we become convinced that not only will the grave not be the end of us, but when we're assured that what is beyond the grave is most certainly good for us. Now that's a guarantee that only Jesus can give. Because as we've seen, he's dealt with the reason why death is a fearful thing. After the grave, we will all come face to face with God our Maker. We'll have to give an account of our lives. After death comes judgment for everything we've said and done and thought. Fear of death comes from knowing deep in our soul that on that day, none of us will measure up. We've all fallen short of the standard that God requires of his creatures. No one will be able to truthfully say, I have loved you, God, with all of my heart, mind and soul and I have perfectly loved my neighbour as myself. None of us will be able to plead not guilty. Our only hope is that God will be like the man in Jesus' story that he'll cancel our debt and forgive us. This third picture of redemption shows us that what God has done is much, actually much more than forgiving a slave's debt. God is the kinsman redeemer. In the person of Jesus Christ, he has entered into this world. He's stepped into our humanity. He's become one of us. He's become our kinsman in order to redeem us to not only forgive us, but to bring us into the family. To anyone who comes to Jesus, he says, my father is now your father. My inheritance is now your inheritance. My family is now your family. That's why throughout the Bible the relationship between God and his people is, being, is described as that of a husband to a wife. It's why Jesus is depicted as the bridegroom and the church his bride. That's why it says in verse 8, it is with great compassion that he gathers with everlasting love he has compassion despite the fact that we deserve the opposite. So the message of Jesus is that God is not an impersonal creator who just gives a ticket to heaven to anyone who tries to be good enough. It's that God is the Father who sees people who will never be good enough and in abundant grace and generous mercy he sends his Son for us. He turns aside his wrath on the cross and he pays the debt and he adopts us as sons and daughters. Now, how do we know that's all true? Well, that's what Easter is all about. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, he's verified all of these promises that he made, including 
these ones in Isaiah, they're all guaranteed in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that death has been defeated. And if death has been defeated, then the reason for death has been defeated, our sin. And if sin has been defeated, then so has the slavery that sin brings. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that anyone whose faith is in him, for them there is no more shame, there is no more disgrace, there is no more fear. All sin is forgiven, hope is restored. The assurance of our status as sons and daughters of God is guaranteed. There's nothing that we can do to earn all of this. It's all been done for Jesus and he offers this freely to anyone who will receive it. So will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning where we uh, particularly remember the resurrection of your son from the dead and all that that says to us that death is defeated, that sin is forgiven, that hope is restored and that the invitation is there from you to all who would come and put their faith in you and in your Son and know life and know it to the full. Father, we ask that you will enable us to do that by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, just a heads up, in a moment we're going to invite all the children to come and sit on the platform here during the baptism. Um, but I just want to say it's been, the children have done a great job at listening through that whole sermon aimed at the grown-ups. They've been at the back writing Easter cards there. But in a moment we're going to witness uh, two baptisms. Easter's traditionally been a time of highlighting and remembering the historic events of Jesus' death and resurrection. But for Christians every day, is for remembering, for giving thanks and for living in light of that great sacrifice that he made for us. This Easter Sunday is a bit different for us here at Bethel Christian Church because we'll be witnessing the baptisms of two people who know that to be true in their lives. By their action of being baptised, they'll be demonstrating that the Christian faith isn't just a set of ideas It's actually real life. Baptism is a picture of what Jesus has done for all who believe in him. It's not so much a thing we do as something that's done to us. Jesus is the one who baptises using the hands of his church. It's been described in this way. Baptism is the way in which a claim is made on a person's life by God and by the church. It says to me, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price and I now belong to God and to a family of brothers and sisters. Baptism then is a way for the church to say, welcome to the family. And we need to be clear, the church isn't a club for people who have their lives all sorted out. It's a community of people who know that they're sinners and they're broken people. But they also know that Jesus alone is the one who 
forgives and welcomes sinners. Jesus alone can heal and restore those who are broken. So the water speaks of cleansing from guilt and shame and sin and all that pollutes our hearts and our minds and our consciences. While the water washes the body on the outside, um, lost my spot. It speaks of an internal washing of the heart done by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. So as the person goes down into the water and then comes up again, it speaks of death and resurrection. They have died with Jesus in his death but also been made alive with him in his resurrection. So in baptising a person we're saying all of the bad of their past is gone and they are a new creation in Christ. Now Jesus, being without sin, didn't need to get baptised. But nevertheless, he did. It was an act of demonstrating his full identification with us. He was baptised into us. He was clothed with us, clothed in our humanity so that he could be our perfect kinsman redeemer. When we're baptised, it's a symbol of our identification with Jesus. And the, the Bible describes it as putting on Christ. It's a way that we express our acceptance in faith of all that he's done for us. And it's also a way of receiving the mandate that he gives to all of his people to be his ambassadors in this world, to communicate the hope of the gospel in our words and to demonstrate the power of the gospel in our lives. So before we do the baptism, uh, Lena uh, is going to come up and share her testimony. Thanks, Lena.